You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John here this morning. We have been walking through the book of 1 John together as a church, uh, verse by verse. We've been in it since uh, early this fall, and, uh, and we've been trusting the Lord to do great work as, uh, as we've been looking at the book of 1 John as, as a mirror of authenticity, uh, a mirror that shines God's word into our hearts uh, so that we can see the work that is left to, to be done. And also to be asking ourselves the questions of, of authenticity uh, as believers in Christ. Are we truly authentic? And so as you are turning in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 12 here this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have lots. We would love uh, to give one to you. Just put your hand up. Our ushers would bring one to you. Uh, if you do not have a Bible at home, uh, we would say take that. That is our gift from, from us to you. Uh, the gift of God's word that brings life, that would introduce you to Jesus Christ and to offer salvation uh, through what you hear from, uh, from him. And so we are going to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just ask you, you know, maybe why you think the New Testament seems to be so consumed with the topic of love. And even more so, it seems to be more consumed, especially in uh, the writings of John, uh, the topic of loving one another. Why is it that the apostles John and Peter and Paul call the church over and over again to love one another? Or even more so, why did even Jesus himself have to make a new commandment, as he did in John 13, 34, to, to love one another just as I have loved you, he said. You also are to love one another. Why is there a need for such an exhortation? Why is there a need for such a command? I mean, when you think about it, do we really need to be commanded to love one another? I mean, isn't, isn't love just one of those easier aspects of the Christian faith? Doesn't love just come naturally to us as Christians? That as the Lord saves people and draws them together as the church, that authentic love for each other is just this kind of an abundant, almost a utopian kind of bliss that we all share together where everyone just gets along so perfectly and, and nobody gets into a conflict. And all there is is just this perfect, overflowing love for one another where there's no hurt feelings, where nobody's ever left out, where we never sin against each other, that our Christian lives together as the church has now uh, become almost some kind of superficial fairy tale Kind of like that Truman Show, if you've seen that, just this kind of weird kind of bliss nobody does wrong. Why do we need such a command to love one another? Well, if you've been a Christian for some time now, and if you've been around churches in your life, you know full well why we need this command. Why we need to be told and reminded over and over again to love one another. You know, love, friends, does not come naturally. And love doesn't come easily. Even as love is one of those spiritual fruits in our spiritual walks, we sometimes just don't know how to operate in love so well. We don't always get along 
love can be a challenge amongst us that in, instead of some kind of an idealistic loving bliss, we as Christians can even still be prone to hurting one another, to offending one another, to being unloving at times. Well, friends, the reason why we need to be told and commanded over and over again to love one another is because we need to hear it over and over again. We need to be reminded over and over again just how crucial love is to God because it has everything to do with all that he is. It has everything to do with all that he is. As the Apostle John is known as being the Apostle of love, no other New Testament writer is, is so obsessed with love as he is. No other New Testament writer writes so much about love. In fact, in this book of 1 John alone, he mentions love 24 times, and it's a very small book. And we've got this command to love one another, and we see already that this, is, this has already been addressed twice before today in this book, as we've already studied. And today we're looking at the third instance of this command to love one another. And so, friends, as we've been looking at the book of 1 John as a mirror of authenticity, today that mirror now turns to the topic of authentic love. That if we want to be authentically loving one another as we're called to and as we're commanded to, we must embrace what authentic love truly is. And so let's look at verses 7 to 12 in 1 John chapter 4. Paul writes, or not Paul, John writes, I was preaching Paul last weekend. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Our Father, we gather together as, as your saints, those, your children that you have saved out of our darkness, out of our sin, and out of this world. Father, we gather together full of your Spirit, we gather in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and we come before you this morning asking for you to speak to us as you faithfully do through your word. And so as we have your word open before us, we ask again that you would open our eyes and our ears to see you and hear you for who you truly are. We ask that you would renew our minds and transform our hearts so that we could be true worshipers of you here this morning and for the days ahead. We trust you. And we pray for you to do the work that only you can do. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if we want to authentically love each other as we are commanded, we must embrace what authentic love truly is. And to embrace what authentic love truly is means that we must start with the source of love. We must start by knowing the foundation of, 
of authentic love. And we see that as we begin to look at verses 7 to 8, as, as John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. So friends, beloved church, you know, just as John addresses his own church, beloved church, if we are to love one another authentically, as we are so clearly commanded right here, it all starts out by knowing the foundation for such a love. And as John says here, it all comes down to knowing that love is from God and also knowing the God who is love. And so let's start out with this concept that love is from God. Love is from God. What does that mean? What this means, friends, is that love isn't a thing in and of itself. That love isn't something that just mysteriously shows up one day from out of nowhere. That love isn't something that just evolved from within us as some kind of a survival mechanism, but rather that love came from somewhere else. That love came from someone else. That it is a source outside of ourselves, a source that is outside of this world, a love that came from the very fountainhead of love, the person of God himself. That's what John means here by saying that love is from God. He says, for, or you can also say, because love is from God. That's the whole underpinning of love. And what that means is that when you see it or you experience it right in front of you, remember, it didn't come from nowhere. And you also have to know that that didn't come from yourself but rather that it came from the true source, God himself. It's like when a prospector finds a gold nugget along some kind of dry creek bed. He knows that that piece of gold didn't just appear randomly from nowhere. No, he knows that that nugget of gold comes from a source up in the valley. There's some kind of a vein of gold where that came from, from somewhere else. It's like when you experience the warmth of a, of a sunbeam upon your face. You know that that beam of light and heat didn't come from the earth, but rather that it came from the sun, which is like 147,000 or 147 million kilometers away. You experience that light and heat that's coming from that reaction of, of fusion and that just continues to pour out and, and shine forth and, and pour energy towards us with an unlimited supply and abundance. And so friends, biblically speaking, love isn't just a thing in and of itself. No, love is from God. And friends, we need to know this. We need to know this all the more in a world that is so confused about love a world that is so flippant about love, a world that is trying to redefine love, and I would say even our hearts that don't fully understand love. So friends, love is not defined just by your experience, just by your feelings or your sentiment, but rather that love is defined by its source. And that is God himself, who by the way, John also says here, as you look at the verse at the end of verse 8, 
is not only the source of love, but what does it say? It says God is love. God himself is love. And so, friends, what we see here is that not only uh, is love sent and given by God, but that source of love is God's very nature itself. It's who he is. It's like the sun's radiating beams pointing back to the source that he is pure, authentic love to the very core of who he is, radiating and overflowing that love to us. One commentator, Leon Morris, puts it this way. He says, God is love means more than God is loving or that God sometimes loves. It means that he loves, not because he finds objects worthy of his love, but because it's his nature to love. His love for us depends not on what we are, but on what he is. He loves us because he is that kind of God, because he is love. So friends, the word for love here in the Greek is, is the word akapao from the root agape. As, as the language of Koine Greek, ancient Greek in that day, had five different types of words for love, each possible word for love has different nuances and meanings with regard to love. But as agape love is being used here, This is the word that is most often used to speak about the quality and the kind of love that is associated with God's love. Agape literally means, and it literally speaks, of an unconditional love. Love that is given from one person to another, not by preference or partiality, but love that is freely chosen and freely given, love from the benevolent courts of God himself, which operates according to his abundant grace and will alone, love that cannot be earned by any kind of effort, love that cannot be coerced or enticed, Love that is not based on a fleeting feeling or an emotion, but rather love that is fully benevolent and charitable. Love that speaks, seeks, and keeps the best for his beloved. That's the kind of love God has for us towards those who were steeped in their foolishness and their sin and their fallenness. And so friends, that love that John is commanding his church to have for one another is the same agape kind of love. It's a love that's not based on favoritism. It's a love that's not based on feelings. It's a love that doesn't expect anything in return, but love that is from God. This is the love of who God is. Again, we think of that love and we understand that love as a love that is given freely. It's given willingly. And we do that for each other for the good of the other person. It's the same love that, that Paul wrote about in Ephesians 2.4 in regards to our salvation. Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Or John 3.16, For God so loved the world, or even as far back to that Hesed love in Exodus 34, 6, where, where God proclaims his character in his name, where he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, the type of love that God gives and God is, 
is that great, abounding, pursuing, and keeping love. And this is love that can, can't be found anywhere else or sourced in anyone else so perfectly than in God himself. So as we think about God's love here and how he loves for the good and, and the best of his beloved, we have to make sure to understand how this love rolls out. That his love isn't just some kind of a big tent, universalist kind of approach to love. That love is love. That he doesn't care about your sin. He doesn't care about your transformation. That he doesn't care about your holiness. No. No, if we think of his love that way, that's a false idea of love. No, friends, God's love is a love that doesn't wink at sin like kind of a spoiling grandfather in the sky. His love doesn't close its eyes to our behavior. No, although his love is not contingent upon our own righteousness, he is no less concerned about our growth in righteousness. I remember an old preacher once saying, God's love is not a pampering love, but it's a perfecting love. Friends, God's love is a refining love. It's a, it's a transforming love. On one hand, it's a love that sought you out in your sin, but in the same breath, it's a love that wants to sanctify you from your sin. Why? For your good and for his glory. It's like the love you have for your children. It's a love that not only gloats over them in all of their cuteness, but even more so, a love that knows when to discipline for their good. As Proverbs 13, 24 teaches us this principle of, of love and discipline, Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. It's a disciplining kind of a love. That's the type of love God gives. It's a, a disciplining love from his very heart. Hebrews 12, 6 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. This is also true when it comes to the church. Now, as a church, we believe in church discipline. Although this is so often misunderstood and avoided, to truly understand church discipline, it's all about love. It's love for the purity of the church, and it's also love for the person who might be under that discipline for their good. No, friends, love according to God isn't a lopsided, spoiling, pampering love, but it's a love that comes along, and, and it's a love that loves enough to tell you the truth. It's a love that also confronts you in your error. It comes when the time is right. It's a love that exhorts. It's a love that corrects. It's a love that teaches. And it's a love that'll take you through the hardest things, the hardest trials. It'll take you through the suffering that God is even allowing in your life for your ultimate good. I mean, just think about Job. Do we question God's love for Job? It's a love that Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So again, love is not as the world defines it, or even as we might naturally desire, but it's a standard of love poured out from the courts of heaven in the way that only God can. It's the standard John holds his church to here in this letter of 1 John. And so again, it all starts out with a right theology of love. 
It starts out with a a study of the very character of God, that he is the one who sets the baseline. He is the measuring rod. He is the one that we compare everything to. He's the mirror. And so with all of that now in our back pocket, now look at how this love is then to be translated to us. So look look now back at the second half of verse 7, where it says, whoever loves has been born of God, and knows God. And then look at verse 8 where it says, anyone who does not love does not know God. So we're seeing this both positively and negatively. We see John here connecting loving to knowing. Connecting loving God to knowing God. He's specifically showing us that authentic love has everything to do with truly knowing God. In fact, he says that to truly love means that it all starts out here with being born of God. Being born of God. Not born of God in the general sense that everybody in this world is ultimately born under the sovereignty of God, but no, rather that you are a born again, born of God person. And how do I know that? Well, it just comes down to the simple connection found right here in the text between being born of God and knowing God. Friends, the only way that you can truly know God is to be born again. To know God in the biblical sense is to know him in an intimate saving relationship. And that is only experienced by who? It's only experienced by those who have been saved by God. Those who have been born of God. That's why we call ourselves born-again Christians. And so with that key understanding of rebirth and truly knowing God, we, we, we're led to understand more of what John is teaching here, that the authentic Christian relationship with God is so crucially connected to authentic Christian love. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And so the test of love that is so crucial here is so crucial because it's based on being born again and truly knowing God. And so we ask ourselves that question right now. Am I truly born again? And do I truly know God? And is the evidence of love pouring out of me that should point me back to the fact that I am born again? And that I do truly know God. J.C. Ryle, he writes as he says, If we have no love, we have no grace, no regeneration, no Christianity, no true Christianity. And so if you find yourself really struggling to love, there's nothing wrong with taking a good look at yourself. To take a good, hard look In that as well, to your claim to the faith, to that professed rebirth that you claim, that you claim to know God. What what is the Bible telling me here? If, If I claim all these things, but I have not love. As John says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Your love or lack of love may be saying a lot to your position before God. Friends, as agape love, the kind of love that God is, seeks the good of others, whose good are you ultimately seeking? And who are you ultimately loving? Is it God? Is it others? Or are you loving yourself? 
Friends, to be born again is to be born of God. And to be born of God means that you were born into his likeness. And that in his likeness, as his child, you're starting to show his characteristics in you. You're starting to reveal some of his attributes as you're starting to learn about him and grow in him by his spirit. Some of his characters is starting to come out of you. And John really highlights this attribute of love because God is love. And if God is love, his offspring, his children, will also carry the attribute of love. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to do this perfectly like God. Now, this is something, friends, that we grow into and we grow up in, right? As we put off our old selves and as we put on Christ, as we give ourselves truly to knowing God by his word, as John says here, then you will see that you will begin to look more and more like God. And that attribute of love is going to start pouring itself out into others, to which John says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so, friends, it truly begins with knowing the foundation of authentic love. That this is something that I just can't whip up on my own. Authentic love is not something that I have naturally within me. But this is something that is sourced from outside of myself. This is found in God alone, who is both the source and the substance of authentic love. Now, it's one thing to say that you love someone, but it's another to show your love to someone, isn't it? Like, it's one thing to say to your wife, I love you, and it's it's another to, to give her a token of love, to show her how much you love her. Like, maybe it's flowers, or it's a date, or it's just time with her. Or maybe for your husband, ladies, maybe that means that uh, just saying you, you love him uh, when it's joined with physical affection or attention, or maybe it's a special dinner that he loves. See how that proves the love that you have for each other. It's, it's one thing to say you love someone, and it's another to actually do an act of love for them. Love, friends, isn't just about words. Love just isn't about knowledge. Love is also about action, and it's about experience. Friends, the kind of love that comes from God, who is love, has action. It's not just in word, but it's in deed, and it has a demonstration. The kind of agape love from God, as we understand it from the scriptures, has the infinitely greatest loving demonstration that has ever been revealed or known. As John goes on to say in verse 9, he says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, as our love must start out by knowing the foundation of authentic love, we must also fuel our love by seeing the demonstration of authentic love. Seeing the absolute, pure, perfect, sufficient, final demonstration of authentic love as witnessed by the very sending of love himself, our Savior, his only Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. Friends, if you want to see the greatest love in action ever, just look to the cross. Look to the cross. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into our world 
Friends, to, to make manifest here, this language means to make something visible. It's to take something that is invisible and make it visible. That as God would profess his love to his people throughout all of redemptive history, there was no love more visible than when he sent Jesus to save us from our sin. To make manifest doesn't mean that God's love was hidden. As we look to the Old Testament, we see God's love everywhere. He was a God that not only expressed his love for his people, but that he also demonstrated in a very evident way throughout the history of his people. If you look back to the Garden of Eden, if you look back to Adam and Eve, when they partook of their sin, and they're trying to cover up their own shame with with leaves, what happens? God demonstrates his love towards them by covering them with animal skins. Or if you fast forward to the story of Noah, And you see how the world was so evil continually in every way, how the Lord also spared humanity through one family on one ark. That was a demonstration of love to those who don't deserve it. Or how about when you think about the Israelites, how they're saved from Pharaoh in Egypt, and how they're saved through some extremely visible and tangible ways by God as God parts the Red Sea and then he destroys their enemies. How God also relented later of bringing disaster upon his own people and he brings the next generation into the promised land. All of this was real and tangible demonstrations of his saving love towards his people. But yet, all of those even though those are great, incredible examples and proof of his love in action, all of them are nothing in comparison to the saving action of God as displayed as he sent himself, sent his son, his only son, into the world to save us from our sin. And we remember that we're not loved because we're lovable. We were a spiritually dead world. We come from an evil world. But because of his great love, he sent his son so that we might have life through him. In this is love, right? In this is the meaning. If you truly want to define love, this is it. This is that definition. In this is love, John says. Not that we have loved God, I didn't love God before he saved me. I wasn't pursuing God. The Bible even tells me that I was a hater of God. Not that we have loved God. We didn't love God. But as the Bible says, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Have you ever heard of such love as that? That not only did God determine to save us by his love, not only did he send his only son by his love to live for us, uh, not only did he send him to come down to earth to put on flesh, to live the perfect life, but he sent his son on a death mission for what reason? But the propitiation of our sins in order that we may live. Now the word propitiation is kind of a big word that we don't really use a whole lot today in our everyday life. But it's a word that packs so much meaning as to the demonstration of God's love towards us. So propitiation, what does that mean? Well, propitiation comes from the Greek word hilasmon, which literally means an action or an offering or even a gift that is given for the appeasing or averting of someone's rightful anger or wrath. 
that you may have offended someone so very seriously, or maybe you have sinned against someone so grievously that reparations are going to have to be made in order to make amends. And so what John is referring to here regarding God's love through propitiation is that as we have an infinite debt of sin that is owed to God, that is owed by the whole world, that as we so grievously sinned against his holy name, that as Romans 2 reveals, we were storing up wrath, storing up wrath against ourselves for the day of God's wrath. And that this wrath of God for our sin could never be repaid by ourselves. It could never be appeased by our own doing. In fact, this whole concept of propitiation was often used when it came to even pagan religions of the day. When people all over the known world uh, believe in so-called gods and false gods, they believe that these gods are angry with them all the time. And they, they have to continually be settling this wrath of these gods so that they could live. And so they offer sacrifices to these false gods. They offer offerings to them, even to the point of sacrificing people, even sacrificing their own children in order to appease these so-called gods. It's everywhere. It's all over the world. It's still happening today. And so their religion was a continual propitiation on their part. But friends, the difference between the true faith and the true God of the Bible is that he is a God of both justice and love. Even though he does have wrath over our sin, the difference with our God, the only God, is that we could never make enough reparations. We could never offer enough propitiation. Well, the difference with the gospel is that as he is the one who, who made this world and created us, he is also the one who made the offering that was given so freely in order to satisfy his own wrath. That we could never sacrifice enough. We could never give enough. And that as he loved us before the foundation of the world, his benevolent plan was always to pay the debt himself. His plan was always to satisfy his own wrath by sending himself, sending Jesus Christ, sending his only son, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son to make propitiation. Propitiation, again, that could never be made by us. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the true gospel. That I could never do enough good to pay the debt that I owe God. I could never do enough good to propitiate for my own sin. That is the gospel. That's why Jesus had to come. That's central to the gospel. That as we weren't even looking to be saved, that as we weren't loving God first, just as John says here, right? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The only son. Friends, this is the only action, this is the only offering that could ever save someone from the wrath of God. And friends, that is love. That is authentic love. That is infinite love from the grace of God himself. In this is love. Friends, this is the sweetest, most beautiful, most awe-producing Reality that we could ever wrap our minds around, around the love of God. That God would condemn his own son 
to save us. That out of love that we don't deserve because of God's loving character. Right? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He crushed his son for our iniquities. That as we had an infinite debt to pay that could never be repaid through a sacrifice of a trillion Passover lambs, the only one perfect lamb, God himself, God the son, so willingly suffered the excruciating wrath of God that all of us deserve. That he suffered the infinite weight of God's anger out of love for us. That for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Propitiation. Infinite love equals infinite life. You know, as we sing the, uh, the song that we love so much, right, Christ alone, we sing, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. That's why we sing. That's why we praise God for such love. That's love. That's authentic love. I mean, just think of how, how Paul writes this in Romans 5, 6 to 8. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. So can you see it? Can you behold it? Can you fathom it? Can you understand it? It's like the old hymn from Charles Wesley when he sings, and can it be, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So friends, that's why we sing. That's why we have a song. That's why we have music. It's to praise God for his unfathomable love. Even though we can't even fully comprehend it, our job is to, is to just apprehend it, to embrace it, and to receive it. As one commentator says this, he said, it is one of the New Testament's resounding paradoxes that it is God's love that averts God's wrath from us. And indeed, that is precisely in this averting of wrath that we see what real love is. Friends, this is who God is. This is who your God is. As God is both loving and just, he satisfies his own justice by loving us enough to sacrifice his own son for us. We can't get over that. That's why we sing. That's why we live. And so it's one thing to say I love you, and it's another to show it. And boy, didn't God show it. So friends, as John is defining authentic love for his people, God is the standard. God is the source. God is the substance. God is the sacrifice. It's all him. And it's all of him. So if you're trying to explain love to someone, be careful to tell them the whole story. Tell the whole story about the horrifying tragedy of our sin before a holy God. Right? Tell the bad news. 
but then follow up with the good news. That we weren't loving God, but God loved us. And out of that, he saved us. We didn't deserve it, but he did it because he's a God of love. And that because of such love, that should just melt us in humility and confession and repentance and love towards him because he loved us first. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. Friends, authentic love is not to be defined by the world, but by God. And he defined it 2,000 years ago. And so see the demonstration of his authentic love. Embrace that demonstration of his love. Believe upon the cross of Jesus Christ for you, and that love will save you and love you forever. And so we're to be knowing the foundation of authentic love. We're to be seeing the demonstration of authentic love in Christ as, and as we are to be the recipients of such an amazing love, we then need to be the substantiation of authentic love. And so as John began this whole section here by commanding his church to love one another, as he started out with the groundwork of theology about who God is in love, how he demonstrated his love, now we can respond in how we are to love. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That because of all of that amazing love on display in Jesus Christ, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Friends, it's his love that motivates. It's his love that compels. It's his love that propels the love that we are to have for one another. I mean, when you really think about it, how could we not operate in any other way? How could we not operate in any other way than just to love one another by, by seeing the love that is on the cross? If God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. Ought here means that there is no other way. There is no other option to, that we ought to really tells us that we're bound to this. This is how it works. Friends, if we are founded upon his love and if we are fueled by his love, we are bound to his love to love others, to love one another. But yet even though we may say that we believe this, we may also say sometimes, but that person is so hard to love. That person treated me in a, in a, in a really unloving way. They don't deserve my love. Or you might say, I've tried to love that person, but they don't return my love. Therefore, I'm cutting them out of my love. Maybe it's a friend who betrayed you. Maybe it's somebody who hurt you. Maybe it's someone in your life, even in the church, who did you wrong. And you just don't feel like loving them anymore. Maybe it's someone in your life who not only doesn't love you, but despises you. Someone who maybe used you or, or abused you. Maybe somebody who so grievously sinned against you that you have no room in your heart at all for them. Maybe you're withholding your love from someone in your family. Maybe you're withholding authentic love for, for your own spouse. Maybe you have no hope of them ever changing. Friends, all of this fallen world can be really tough and exhausting and hurtful 
Our choice to not extend love towards each other is not something that we have a right to. We don't have the choice to withhold our heart, especially in the church. It's not a freedom that we have. No, because we're bound by this same love. And we are compelled to a love that is not set to our standards, to our feelings, or by our experience, but a standard of love that is sourced in the fountainhead of love, God himself, which he ultimately pours out to us through the blood of Jesus Christ himself. That's God's agape love. It can't be earned. It can't be bought. Now, as we remember the shocking truth and the beauty of the cross, we must remember that we weren't loved by God because we were lovable. No, we were lovers of ourselves. We were natural haters of God. We were betrayers and rebels uh, towards God from the very beginning. We broke his righteous laws. We continued in our sin before his very face and that as we rebelled and went on our own way, we didn't deserve his love at all. But... He so lavishly poured out his love towards us. And it overflowed to us through his son. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. So friends, again, that is the standard. That is the motivation. That is the measure. And so this call and this command to love one another isn't anything that we can reject. No, it is a life that we need to engage And we need to substantiate it. Friends, to substantiate means to show that something is true. That as we are commanded to love one another, the very response and reaction of us loving each other is revealing the truth about God, that he is a God of love. This proves it to each other. It proves it to the world that this gospel stuff that we talk about is really true. That Jesus is really true. That's how Paul closes out this section here as he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, right? As God is spirit. If you go to Colossians, it talks about God is invisible. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But now as Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, the the way that the world sees God is through God's people. The way that the world is to most clearly see the truth of God is by seeing how the church is transformed and being perfected in love. That as God's presence abides in us by his spirit, as John is showing us, and as his love is being poured into each other, friends, it all comes down to love. That just as Jesus said in John's gospel, In John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, if you want to show the truth of God to your family, to your friends, and to the world, again, it all comes down to love. The love that we have for one another here. And then as how that love is also extended to the world around us as we show to them a substantiated love through our life, love that never ends, love that covers a multitude of sins, love that exhorts and confronts and admonishes, love that confesses and repentance, love that forgives, and love that counsels and heals and worship. 
worships, friends, that is what it's all about. That's what God is all about. This is who he is. And if we are his children, this is now who we are as well. So friends, the reason John needed to instruct his church, the reason the Holy Spirit needs to instruct our church still today is that this love just doesn't come naturally, but it's a supernatural love from the very courts of heaven. And the reason that we need to hear about this over and over again is because authentic love is not easy. But authentic love is sourced in the eternal fountainhead of God's abundant love. And as Christ's example of his wrath-appeasing, sacrificial love sets the standard for all of us to be measured against, and as we have the abiding spirit who is completing and perfecting God's live love in us, friends, we can actually love one another. And we must love one another. And so as we just celebrated five years together as a church, I believe this is so fitting for us for the days ahead that as we continue to pray for unity, that Lord willing, we will strive together in love for, for many more years ahead and that the key to that striving and health and maturity for the glory of God will be found in no other place than the grace and the love that we have in Christ Jesus. That as we know that we aren't perfect, but that Christ's love is being perfected in us, that we can actually know this love for God and we can actually practice agape love for one another. Friends, love is from God. God is love. Let us love one another, for love is from God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are only gathered here because of your love towards us. Only you could put together a bunch of people from all over the world, from different backgrounds, different understandings, only you can open all of our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ and to see your love and to be truly transformed and saved as children of God. And so as we take some time to reflect upon your love and then see this command of love, we again just confess, we come before you that we often fail. And so we confess before you that even as we have such access to such an abundant overflowing love in you, that we need to grow in this. And that growing comes through repentance and faith, the continual putting off of the old man and putting on Jesus Christ. As we continue to strive together for your glory as the church, we want to confess how much we need to know you as love, that love is from you, and how much we need to love one another. And so by the strength of your spirit, as we are convicted by your word, as we're motivated by the gospel, would you just produce that love in us? as we aim to love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.